You're listening to KMUZ Turner. Visit our website at kmuz.org to see our complete program schedule and learn more about supporting KMUZ. Welcome to the Forum, our weekly public affairs program. We edit and rebroadcast recordings of lectures, interviews, and presentations of public interest to the Mid-Willamette Valley. Find our Facebook page, The Forum on KMUZ, for upcoming topics and to leave comments. Salem's Public Library was a showpiece when it was built in 1972, replacing a 60-year-old building that had housed the books on Winter Street. As the years went by and the public safety center was added to the Liberty Street complex, traffic increased and new rules were added for safety, energy conservation, and even building reinforcement. So two years ago, the library closed temporarily for remodeling and upgrades. And as it's finally reopened to public use, the Salem City Club invited speakers to explain the changes. Kate Umerson with the Salem Public Library Foundation came to the virtual presentation. City design engineer Aaron Kimsey and Deputy Chief Librarian Kimberly Carroll spoke via Zoom to members of Salem City Club in December. Hello, I'm Ron Ekus, president of Salem City Club, and I'd like to welcome you today for another of our timely programs on current issues. I'm glad you can join us for this program in our 2021 and 2022 program season in what is our 55th year. Our mission is to provide nonpartisan civil discourse on important civic issues. Because of the ongoing pandemic, we will be presenting our programs virtually for the time being. This will be our last program of this year, but we will resume again on January 7th, after which we will again be presenting programs every two weeks. We hope you will sign up and join us. You can visit SalemCityClub.com for more information and to register for our programs. As always, I want to thank our members, volunteers, and friends who continue to support Salem City Club. Your membership and donations enable us to continue presenting these programs. Thank you as well to Spire Management for the association services they are providing. And Salem City Club also depends on the generous support of our supporting business partners. These are KMUZ Community Radio, Eugene Fobert Graphic Design, Pioneer Trust Bank, Rich Duncan Construction, Virgil T. Golden Funeral Home, and Busy Bees Real Estate. And now today's program lead, Bob Martin, will introduce our speakers. Thanks, Ron. And thank you viewers for joining us to celebrate the reopening of the new Salem Public Library. As you know, the main library building and parking garage have been closed for about two years during construction to seismically retrofit the buildings and to improve uh, building accessibility and outdated building systems. On October 1st of this year, finally, the new Salem Public Library reopened to the public. If you haven't been to the library yet, do yourself a favor and stop by. By the way, there's now three hours a day of free parking. It's an infrastructure win for our community. The building is much safer. And here's a spoiler alert, it is beautiful. Today, we have three speakers involved in this project who will share their perspectives on how the library has been improved. 
Aaron Kimsey is Senior Engineering Program Manager for the City of Salem, where he's worked for nearly 20 years. Currently, Aaron is the managing is managing the development of the city's five-year capital improvements project and wrapping up the recently completed Salem Public Library Improvements Project. Kate Van Umerson is Executive Director of the Salem Public Library Foundation. Kate has assisted nonprofits since 2009. In 2016, she became the Executive Director of the Salem Public Library Foundation. The foundation provides resources to support literacy, promote arts and culture, build collections, find library improvements beyond, and fund library improvements beyond those that are covered by tax dollars and manages the endowment. And our third speaker is Kimberly Carroll, the Deputy Chief Librarian. Kim has worked in libraries in Oregon, Virginia, and Arizona. Prior to joining the Salem Public Library in April 2021, Kim spent six years in Arizona working for the Maricopa County Public Library System. She managed a, a large branch library and was later promoted to regional manager overseeing the operations of several branch libraries. Before we hear from our speakers, we're going to see a, a short video, a virtual tour of the new library. And that will take about seven minutes. By the way, in, if the video isn't clear to you on your screen, it might be related to uh, your uh, Wi-Fi connection. So let's go to the video, Cindy. Thank you. Included the um, general contractor and architects. You know, there just were so many people who were so critical, including all of the library staff and all of the library supporters and all of the patrons of the Salem Public Library. All of you were critical in making this building, this beautiful revitalized library space possible. Thank you all so, so much. Exterior features include a beautiful daylight entry plaza paid for with the help of the Salem Library Foundation. A new parking kiosk for placing meters, a reinforced parkade with access on Liberty Street and exit only on Leslie Street, and a new feature starting this year, three hours of free parking one time each day and a new book drop off Liberty Street between the library and City Hall. Really, this, this uh, bond project was uh, about creating a safe and more accessible uh, library for the public. And so um, from the very beginning, we looked at the size and accessibility of the structure and realizing that it's a, a building that was built in 1972. It had some, so some flaws and then codes have changed over the years. And so we actually constructed five shear walls uh, around the exterior of, of the building and a couple in, in interior shear walls that are going to stabilize it in the event of an earthquake. Some of the things we decided to do with those shear walls, because, um, you know, they're big concrete walls, is actually to make them a decorative element. So you will see that... Uh, it's got a nice uh, dark background to make the green living wall that will eventually be there as the star jasmine and the clematis grow up the trellis. You can also see the trellis. Uh, we are so excited to have that beautiful, uh, the beautiful living wall. And it's been one of the concepts that started 
early on in this project and we've managed to carry it through and make it a reality. Because the building was built in 72, a lot of the a lot of the access and the walkways were um, no longer in compliance with, with, with uh, current code. Improvements include accessible, family and gender neutral restrooms, wider sidewalks, automatic doors, a ramp to the stage at Laux Auditorium, as well as improved wheelchair seating and hearing assist devices in all of our meeting rooms. We've also moved holds and large print books close to the entrance for easier access. Our friends group supports us by taking donations and by taking books that we can no longer use in the life cycle of the library and turning them into new books for us. Also near the entrance is the automated materials handling system where you can drop return books through a slot and they will be automatically sorted and removed from your account. The system means less staff time preparing books for shelves and more time to spend with patrons. Right here we have our one of our self-checkout stations. You will find these throughout the library to make checking out and taking your items home with you as easy as possible. Near the elevator, you'll find one of the newly refreshed gateways created years ago by artist Kristen Coons. We have changed around on the main floor, the first floor now, the fiction and nonfiction collections for the adult materials. So you will find all of your fiction collections over by the windows on the west side of the building, movies and DVDs and things like that in the middle. And on the east side of the building, you will find our nonfiction collections all the way through to the back. You'll be able to see the library's public art collection in new ways because the Salem Library Foundation and Salem Arts Commission worked together to curate the collection. One of the things we heard a lot about in the outreach for the project is that people wanted to see more lighting throughout the space because they felt like there were parts where they couldn't even find the books they were looking for because it was so dark. So lighting was one of the things that we made sure to add. And we even reused some of the lighting from the reading room in the children's area. The concept for the library's redesign took its inspiration from the many trees on the site. Each floor and its color scheme represented a portion of the tree. From the brown roots of the plaza level, where most staff offices are located, to the green understory of the first floor, where adult collections are centered, to the blue canopy of the second floor, where youth activities are focused. Teens, children's, and tiny tot areas are now located together on the second floor, a request from the public for family convenience. And familiar items have been repurposed, like the fairy tale art glass that can be better viewed against the backdrop of the trees outside. The reading room in that had been in the middle of what is now the first floor was a catalyst for this whole project. I think it led us to see what the future of Salem Public Library could be um, and how comfortable and how much it could bring all of the members of the community together in this common space. These glass elements uh, in the collaboration studio that's on the plaza level and the um, backsplash here, those both came from the reading room and we really wanted to make sure that we were honoring the contribution 
of Paul Gaylor um, for that reading room space and the change that I think it really helped bring about at Salem Public Library. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the video. If it wasn't quite the quality that uh, you, you hoped for, you will be able to go to uh, SalemCityClub.com in about a week and see the recorded program, and there you'll see a good video. Or you can go to YouTube and look up the next chapter, Salem Public Library, and see the video there. And one note, Kate, I think your uh, video is on right now. There's Aaron. Our next speaker is going to be Aaron Kimsey. And he's going to, he's the project engineer, and he's going to talk to us a bit about uh, why the library is safer and some of the improvements made there. Aaron, you're on. Great, thanks. Thanks everyone for having me. Uh, as Bob said, I mean, my name is Aaron Kimsey, and I, uh, I'm a project manager with the city of Salem, um, have been for about 20 years. So it's time has flown by fast, and I've had a great opportunity to be a part of really cool projects along the way, um, including this one. So I'll uh, <clears throat> go ahead and share here. So as many of you guys know, back in 2017, uh, the city of Salem had a library bond measure that was approved by voters. And um, the, the main goal of the project was to provide seismic upgrades to the building and, uh, and provide um, much needed improvements to um, the HVAC and plumbing systems. A lot of those, um, all those systems were well beyond their 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 design life. Um, as as was mentioned in the video several times, uh, this building was constructed in 1972, and um, there's been very little um, capital maintenance done over, over that time frame. And so, as you can imagine, um, you know, just as, just as you do on your own house, there's lots of maintenance that needs to, that needs to happen and upkeep. And so, uh, we really wanted to focus on uh, making the building safer, but then also making the building uh, more efficient operationally. Um, for, for years to come. And so additionally, we wanted to provide some new windows that were uh, better suited and more efficient for heating and cooling. Um, I mentioned HVAC, so that heating um, and um, air conditioning. The plumbing for, for the fire and, and some of the uh, restrooms was, was out of date and, and, and needed to be replaced. And I don't know if you remember, but we had really tall orange shelves in uh, in the previous in the previous building, and so they were one not very attractive, and more importantly, they were um, not seismic uh, not, not not seismic safe. Um, they were they were too tall and not not built for um, an event of an earthquake. And another significant improvement that we wanted to make on this project was ADA improvements. So, as you can imagine, as I said in the video, um, a building that was almost that's almost fifty years old is starting to get outdated um, from an ADA perspective. In fact, ADA um, didn't even exist in 1972. So we had over the years been trying to make some improvements, um, but uh, it was all very kind of a retrofit um, solution. Estimated time of the project. So I guess it's not really estimated since we're, we're done, but initially we, we um, got a, a consultant hired and started our design in August, 2018 through October, 2019 and started construction in January of 2022. Actually it was a little bit, a little bit after that. Um, it was more like uh, April where we started our construction. And then the goal was to move in in summer of 2021. So we missed that by just a little bit 
some, uh, COVID had had some things to do with that, but um, we were pretty much able to um, be on schedule for that um, that opening date. And then I have the project project cost estimates here. Um, seismic was going to be about nine point one million of the total eighteen point six million dollar um, bond measure. Six point eight capital improvements, ADA another one point four, and then safety improvements one point three. Next slide. This is just kind of a more detailed breakdown of some of the improvements that we were hoping um, and ultimately were able to make on the project. So as I mentioned, adding um, adding seismic structural upgrades to the building. So this this building was um, not going to not going to stay standing in the significant earthquake, and so. Um, we were able to make those improvements to make this building much, much safer. I'll get into that a little further as we go on onto this presentation. Accessibility upgrades. So it's not just sidewalks and ramps, it's bathrooms and doors, um, you know, the type of handle that a door has. A lot of the railings and guardrails were not to code, they were too short. And so there were just a lot of things that were that needed to be um, improved with this. Roof replacement. We had, a, we had an outdated uh, roof on this project and uh, or on this building. And so we wanted to do that. I mentioned window replacement, system upgrades, mechanical, electrical, all those things. Lighting, um, as Sarah mentioned in the video, was, you know, um, I guess outdated. We wanted to go with LED lighting on everything in the building. So um, it's a much more efficient um, and, uh, some, and, and, and cost savings. Uh, as well as all those improvements, we were hoping to do some kind of facelift on the building. So we wanted to do new carpeting mentioned the new shelving, um, new paint, new ceiling um, tiles and lighting. And so we had quite a bit we wanted to do with this project. The issue was we didn't have a lot of money. 18.6 million sounds like a lot and it is a lot, but for the amount of work we wanted to do, we were really struggling to be able to get all that to fit into this, you know, to, into the pie. And so this, this slide kind of shows, shows that really the majority of the bond measure was for structural accessibility and system upgrades. Um, those aren't very sexy, if you will, um, not very exciting. You don't see a lot of that. It's behind the walls. It's, it's um, just not seen. And so the other little wedge of the pie was all the other things we want to do to make the building refreshed and, and look great. And so when you walk in, you would notice, um, notice the improvements. And so that was kind of the major, major task of, of our project team was how do we, do what we necess that we need to do as part of the bond, and then how do we get some of those extra things that we want? And so we'll get into that as we um, go on to the slides. And so part of the strategy to be able to do that, this is, um, I don't want to get into the weeds too much, but on a normal project, a street improvement project, a sewer water line project, um, we do what we call as a design. You, you design your project, and then you bid it out to the public, and then you build it. With the contractor. And so it's a very effective way of getting a contractor on board and hiring them and building a, building a project. The only problem is um, the contractor who gets hired on very, basically at the end of, the, of design has, has very little knowledge of the project. And so this, this slide kind of represents that. You, you're slowly, uh, the curve of knowledge is slowly getting higher and higher as you get more trades and more folks on board with the project until the very end and you have, everyone has absolute knowledge. So it's, it's effective, um, but in a project like this where we need to be getting some, some ideas and some advice, um, getting good, a good control of costs and, and how we kind of spread the money out, um, 
there's another method that's really effective, and that is called uh, design build. And so this method, um, we're starting to use this more and more on complex projects because it's very effective and it allows for a lot of collaboration. So essentially what we do in this, in this, um, this method of construction is we hire the contractor and the designer. They actually are a team together before the project even starts. And um, they choose each other in the project. And we, with the owner, uh, work through the, the design. And we talk about what we want to do, what are the goals. And the contractor, because he has um, knowledge of the field and, and the market, he can be providing us with, with real-time estimates on how much the project's going to cost. And we can start making changes along the way to try to make, okay, we can do this, but if we, if we change it, we can still get the same result, but we can save this much money and that, that pot of money and then can go to some other, other part of the product improvements that we want to make. So we chose this method and it was a smashing success, I would say. Um, like I said, it allows for knowledge upfront throughout the project and extreme, extreme amount of, cl- of collaboration, a lot of teamwork. And we, I just want to say on this project, we had a really great team with hacker design um, architects and Howardus Wright um, Construction. They were outstanding partners in this project and it allowed us really to be able to do all the things that we wanted to do or needed to do. And then the things that we were hoping to do that we didn't think we could. Um, So uh, I'm going to really just focus in on um, how we were able to make the building safer. And so what, what I really wanted to point out um, for this project is the goal was to make it safe during an earthquake. Um, so before we did any improvements, like I said, this project or this, this, this building would likely have collapsed in an earthquake. And so um, what we wanted to do was make it safe so that if you're in the building during an earthquake, uh, the building will stay standing and then you're able to exit safely and, and get, to, um, get to a safe place. This doesn't mean at the end of the at the end of a major earthquake, that the building might not need some improvements or, or some, um, some repairs after an earthquake. So um, uh, like a thing like a hospital or a police station, those are built to a different standard so that when an earthquake happens, um, they're, they're safe and you can operate within the building even after an earthquake. And so um, we, we were just designing for, let's get everybody out, let's get everybody safe, and then we can reevaluate the building. Um, this, the partner to this, to this building is the parking garage, and it often gets missed, uh, left out in conversations because the library takes um, the lion's share of the attention. But we made similar improvements to the parking garage so that um, it will also be a safe place during an earthquake that we can then and exit afterwards. So we did a total of five uh, shear walls. Um, on the building, the, uh, the, the majority of them were on the exterior. And so we're showing those in blue on this slide. And so this building, the way it, way it built is it was built in the 70s is it, it's just massive amounts of concrete, very stiff building. And um, as you can imagine, as it moves and shakes, it's going to topple on, on, onto itself. And so by, by providing these shear walls at key locations, um, we were able to stiffen up the building even more so that um, in an earthquake, the, the margin of, of, of shake, if you will, or movement um, is, uh, uh, is enough to, to keep it safe in an earthquake. So to give you some perspective, this, these shear walls are two feet thick and they're filled with rebar. I've got a picture here to show you here in a sec. Each rebar is, is one inch thick um, and they can um, sustain up to 40,000 pounds of force. 
each each one. So let me go to the next slide and give you a, a kind of a before and after picture. So this is the shear wall that's on the interior side of the building. One of the few that was actually inside the building. We really wanted to make sure that when we designed these, these shear walls that we were able to get what we wanted from safety, but also not disrupt the movement and flow of, of the structure. This library building is, is, is really great as far as openness and a lot of, a lot of space. And we didn't want to have these walls um, mess up that kind of um, that flow of the building. And so we were really take, we paid special attention to how we could do this to maintain that. Um, so there's the rebar on that. And a lot of these shear walls are built just, just like this. And then on the, on the right-hand side is the finished look. Um, and this one, this one actually has the, the, the public art that was provided as part of the project. Um, here's another uh, shear wall example or picture. And so these shear walls go from the bottom floor all the way up to the top. And so as you can imagine, getting down into the lower levels of the, of the building with construction equipment was, was quite a task. So this is an example of one of those shear walls in that lower level. Um, we essentially built it around the existing improvements. Um, and we had to dig, dig deep foundations to, to, to make that, that, that footing um, fit in with what we wanted to do. Um, <clears throat> and so again, the right-hand side picture when it's done, it's just a, it's just a wall of concrete, and you can't even to the to the common person, you wouldn't even know what was behind it. Um, but it it's it's got all that rebar in there, and it makes the building uh, much much safer in an earthquake. Um, Sarah alluded to or show uh, discussed these exterior shear walls in the video, and I kind of wanted to show a, a before, during, after uh, representation. So this this is an exterior corner on on the commercial street side. And so, as you remember, there was a staircase that came down from that um, that 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 area there that was actually no longer used. It was from a pre. It was from the, the original uh, design. And so we we took out the staircase, took out that wall, and constructed that that uh, that sheer wall with that rebar up there. And uh, the finished look was uh, kind of a black stained stained concrete wall. We wanted to differentiate the old design with from the new, and so we, we wanted to to respect the design and and, and use the concrete that br the brutalistic style that was um, that this that this building is, is is made after, but also wanted to kind of give it a new look. So you, when you looked at it, you could see oh that's that's new construction versus versus the old. Um, okay, and so then this this last slide, I just wanted to show this as again a before and after kind of what the building looked like before. Um, I mean, it's warm and cozy, but it's, you know, a little outdated. You got the orange shelving and the dark colors, um, the staircase. Kate, we'll get, we'll get into some of those improvements that we did it was obstructive. Um, and one thing that the architect really wanted to do when we took down these ceiling tiles, we were able to expose the waffle slab, which is a really cool design that they did back in the seventies. We wanted to actually, um, make that kind of part of the part of the improvement and so kind of to, to, to show and respect um, the architecture that was done back then and so we decided to just completely remove the the ceiling tiles and have the HVAC system it, I think it looks really sharp um, with with the new LED lights um, in the carpet and so um, 
yeah, that's that's what I've got to share. So I'm going to stop sharing and kick it over to Kate with the San Public Library Foundation. You're tuned to All Volunteer Community Radio KMUZ. Turner, broadcasting to the Mid-Willamette Valley on 88.5 and 100.7 FM. And this is our weekly public affairs program, The Forum. I'm Forum producer Stella Schaffer. Engineer Aaron Kimsey is managing Salem's Improvement Project and oversaw the upgrades to the library that have been taking place for almost two years. Kate Van Emerson with the Public Library Foundation came to add details of the improvements and ways they'll serve library patrons, both old and young, while making better use of the space. Deputy Chief Librarian Kimberly Carroll came to talk about how users will get more out of their library. Now the renovation project is finally completed. They spoke at a luncheon hour virtual session of the Salem City Club. Thanks, Erin, and uh, it was a pleasure to work with you on the library project. Um, I'm Kate Van Emerson, the director of the Salem Public Library Foundation, and I wanted to give a little information about the um, foundation and its history. It was started in 1981, and the goal of the founders was to create an endowment for the foundation and um, have that perpetually provide programs. And um, their dream all that time ago has been fulfilled and you'll be able to see some of the products of, of that hard work over the years. Um, the foundation was started to provide enhancements to the library, which included both programs and building projects. Um, one of the projects you're probably most familiar with is Salem Reads. And that is a um, program that we encourage everyone in the community to read the same book. And then in February, we have a month of programming around that. City Club has been a part of that since the very beginning, and we are super proud to be working with them. And February 4th is our sixth Salem Reads Salem City Club collaboration on programming. Um, and I'd also like to thank uh, a lot of the members of the Salem City Club, our former board members of the Library Foundation, and a lot of you are also generous donors. So I'm super grateful for that commitment. And um, you'll see some of what your donations have done in the retrofit project. So um, it was a design build, as Aaron explained. And um, the foundation knew going into that project that not everything would be covered by the bond. And so um, we waited as the design process developed um, and Hacker and Aaron and the Public Works Department came to the foundation and um, presented five different projects that we might be able to help with and participate. And so the the five projects were windows, uh, stair reconfiguration, the expansion of the teen scene, the moving of the discovery room, and um, upgrades to the main entrance. Um, at that time, the foundation was only able to fund the interior projects, which are the first four. Um, and we had interest in the entrance, but um, didn't have the fun, the refund or the funds and resources to to do the main entrance. So I'll go through the the interior projects. Okay, and so now I'll hopefully uh, yeah move into the slides. Good, thank you, Cindy. 
Um, so the first project was um, adding more windows and there were cement blocks along Commercial Street on the main floor and those were removed. And uh, we, we added windows, which added tons of natural new light. Um, and then the bookshelves being lower and of lighter color also helped create a lot of natural light in the, the main library area on the main floor. Um, then the next project was the removal of the staircases. This was the one that went up to the administration office. And the other one that was added, uh, I believe, in the 90s. Um, and those were both kind of chunky and heavy, and they, they didn't serve the design particularly well. So a hacker's idea was to remove both of those staircases and add this staircase, which is also nice because it allows you to see through the building. And it's also obvious when you come into the room how to get upstairs. So the next thing that we were able to do is when we filled in that staircase, one of those staircases, it it allowed us to have so much more room for the teen scene, which added more stacks and more gathering area for um, the teens and, um, and created useful space in a place that had been pretty useless space before. Um, then there was the removal of the discovery room. That was a project that was also done in the, the 80, I mean, in the 1990s. Um, and the architects wanted us to be, to honor the um, original architectural design. And the other thing that the discovery room did is as you entered from the parking garage, it made kind of a cave-like atmosphere um, with the low ceiling in, in the entrance area. And with the removal of the discovery room, as soon as you come in the front doors, you're in this, this large, well-lighted, welcoming, um, bright area. And so it's a lot more pleasing right as you enter the, the area. Um, and so the discovery room was moved back. Um, it's adjacent to the story rooms. Uh, it's larger now. Um, and you can see it at the end of this hallway, just above the little guy in the orange sweatshirt. Um, it is larger and it's also nestled up in the trees. Um, so it's a really inviting, lovely space. And, um, and then... Um, so the, the foundation had shown interest in improving the entrance, but um, we weren't able to fund the entire project. And so as the architects worked more on the design, they um, met with us and presented um, options for it. And the foundation was able to fund $125,000 of that project. And then there were other resources that were found. Um, and so it ended up that we were able to uh, create, create a really inviting, welcoming place where people can sit outside the library that looks as nice as the inside of the library looks. So um, we are really grateful that that project was able to be completed. So with that, I would say that I hope you'll all visit soon. And I'd like to express gratitude for the all the people that we worked with, the library, the city, Public Works, Hacker, Howard S. Wright. This was an incredibly collaborative project. And um, I think it 
it turned out beautifully. And the foundation is very happy to be included in that. Um, and so uh, our funding was possible because of generous donors. And um, so we thank those donors. And we'd also like you to keep us in mind as you do your year end giving. So thank you. And I will pass it off to Kim. Thank you, Kate. Uh, my name is Kim Carroll, and I'm the Deputy City Librarian for the City of Salem. I've been here since um, April, so I was at the tail end of the construction. And I just want to echo what uh, Kate and Aaron and what Sarah said in the video. This has been a, a true community project. We have the support of the bond. We have the city working with Hacker and the designers and public works. And then we have the, the amazing support from the foundation. This building is everything a city wants their library to be. It's a community center. It's, it's stunning. I've worked in libraries for 23 years. And when I saw this building, I was blown away. I was just blown away. It's a beautiful building. And, you know, also I just wanna thank the staff here at Salem Public Library just the logistics of moving out of a building and moving back in a building, it takes an incredible amount of uh, perspiration and dedication, and I'm just super, super grateful to them. So we have had to make some adjustments because of, because of COVID. So right now we've moved, um, we're very excited about having study rooms, which were also added and um, having revamped meeting rooms. Currently, those are closed because of COVID. So, and we have some of the furniture put away, which really adds to the building because it has all this, it's all this bright and pops of color furniture. But in order to um, uh, uh, promote social distancing, we've had to put some of those things away. Our current hours, we open October 1st, and our current hours are 11 to 6. Tuesdays through Saturdays, and then we do curbside pickup on Sundays. So we're really excited because we're working to expand our services in the next few months and, and um, hopefully offer more. Uh, we also are have a pause on our in-person programming. So libraries across the country have had to really think about how, how we're going to work in a COVID world and how we're going to do our services. And so we have created some really um, what I think are innovative solutions. Currently, uh, we have um, uh, our, our, we just did the Salem Reads kickoff where we gave away over 240 copies of the Salem Read books, A Tale for the Time Being, which is sponsored by the foundation. It was a huge success. People are super excited about the program. Um, we've also had to kind of revamp the way we do our early literacy programs. So currently we're going to be offering a live Zoom story time on Tuesday mornings. And in order to get allow people to participate more in those story times, we're gonna actually give away little story time kits that have the things that you need for story time, like a shaker, a scarf, the songs to the, the, the words to the songs that, that we're performing so that we really give people the opportunity to participate in a new way. We also, starting in January, are going to do a snuggle up and read book club for families. So they'll get a calendar and every day that they read, they'll mark off and then they'll bring that calendar back into the library and get a, 
a free book from our Ready to Read grant. Um, we continue with our operation uh, front porch, which is bringing books to the homebound. We are uh, we partner with local groups in order to provide that service. Um, our lab, our team, um, our lab has supported our our teen advisory board. They started a new program where um, it's called Take What You Need. There are clear pocket holders in each of the first floor bathrooms on main, on the main library. And the pockets are stocked with things like lip balm, deodorant, socks, mittens, and also brochures from helping agencies providing information about finding food, mental health assistance, shelter, and more. So we're really thankful for Lab for supporting that and also for our teams for creating that program. Um, during the summer, we, uh, the youth services staff offered books for kids literacy um, projects um, with our community partners. Uh, book kits were provided for several food banks, Head Start, early childhood programs, and mono, uh, mono family centers. So we can't, oh, we can't do programming, but we're giving away books to the community and supporting early literacy that way. Again, we're going to be doing our read. And um, what we usually do is we go to first grade classrooms. This year, we're checking out many libraries to the first grade classrooms. And because uh, many students have kind of missed a year of that opportunity from being in remote learning, we're going to also offer it to second and third grade classrooms. So some of the things we're really excited about in the next few months, Starting in January, we're going to um, reintroduce our cultural passes, which our friends of the library will be supporting. So we're going to uh, have a cultural pass that people can check out to uh, go to the William Heritage Center, the Gilbert House Children's Museum, the Halley Ford Museum, and then a Central Cascades Wilderness Permit. We are also working with the foundation on a DEQ grant to start a library of things, which we hope will be up uh, and running by, we'll have a soft launch in spring and then uh, a bigger promotion in, in June. And then we are expanding our services. We're inviting our volunteers back. Um, we're just trying to think, think of ways to to better serve our community in kind of the situation that we have in the moment. And we're really looking forward again to being able to offer more services, in-person programs, being able to use the discovery room, being able to use the teen scene, being able to offer uh, study rooms for folks and uh, the collaboration studio. All of those things are like really great improvements on the library and we think that you know, once we get to a, a, a better place in the COVID world, we'll be able to um, open up those and invite people in. And we're just, a, in the meantime, we're really excited about being open and expanding our hours and those kind of things. So I think I'm gonna go ahead and turn it over to Cindy. So if there's any questions. Thank you so much, Kim. and. Aaron and Kate for being here uh, today. And congratulations. I mean, it looks so beautiful. And Salem City Club is so pleased to have you here today and have followed this project from the time of the bond measure to now. So 
Thank you so much. And um, it looks like it has come together quite nicely. Let's get started with our first question, which is from Les Margosian, and it's to you, Kim. And so um, hopefully all of the um, panelists have their um, video and audio on. I can't see it because my screen's full. But this question from Les Margosian to Kim, are there any plans to restore the library's book collection to what it once was, say, four years ago? Thank you for that question. As I said, I'm relatively new to uh, Salem Public Library, so I'm not quite, I don't have that historical information, but we have a collection development policy and we're always going to be looking at what the community needs and what we can provide to meet that gap. Uh, What we saw in the last year, and this is definitely because of COVID last couple years, is that our electronic resources, our, our ebooks and our audio books that you get through electronic databases, those numbers went up uh, like over a hundred percent. So so what we'll want to see really in the future is do those numbers decrease as people move back to print or do people prefer electronic resources? So where do we where do we fund our collection? We are resuming our strategic plan in the spring. And so a lot of those kind of questions will be answered by the community through the strategic plan process. I hope that kind of gives you an answer to that question. Okay, thank you so much for that, Kim. And there's a comment um, that Dave has made, LAB, and uh, oh, Kim, I think you used that Yeah, term. that's the Library Advisory Board. There you go. Thank you very much. And this question from Jim Shepke, when will the West Salem Library resume service? So right now we are in the process of hiring people during um, during the closure when we reduced our services. We we had some open positions that we didn't fill for, and so we're in the process of filling those positions. Once we get more fully staffed, we'll open we'll open some hours at West Salem. So that's on the horizon, and we're in the in the you know we're just trying to get people hired at this point, like many places. Um, and then once we get people hired and trained, we'll be opening more hours and resuming some West Salem hours as well. Okay, thank you for that. And now this one for Aaron. Is the seismically retrofitted library building now considered to be a green energy efficient building as well? Good question. We did not get any certifications for this for this new construction, but uh, we were striving and ultimately met um, uh, a green. So when it comes to construction, there's some added cost to the project to get certified. And so, um, but we were, go- we were working with Energy Trust of Oregon to, um, make sure that we had, uh, you know, all new lighting and that we were, we were making our systems more efficient. And so we met the certification goal, but we're not technically certified. That's kind of, um, what, what we did on that, on this project. Thank you. And that question was from Bob Martin, actually. And um, I do have a question uh, to you, Aaron, in your description of the design build process, um, the process used previously, I think was design bid and build, build, mm-hmm. but the design build left out one of the B's, which is bid. Yes. So where does that come into the process or where yeah. did that come? Yeah, that's a great question too. So another another um, nuance to the design build. So 
with design bid build, you design a project and your design team is making estimates on what they think the project's going to cost. And then you go out to bid and you get you get a competitive market, people bidding the project. And you hope that the project comes in under what you thought it would so that you can afford it. But there's always a risk with the project, especially like this, that's complex, that you're going to come in over what you estimated. And so that's where we, that was the crux of the issue is we were really nervous about going out to bid and not with some unknowns. So in the design build process, and you have the, the actual contractor. So we went through a competitive process to hire the team um, based on qualifications and experience and that kind of thing. And once they're selected, then they're working through, um, they're basically designing to match the budget. They're saying, okay, we can do this. We can do that. We're going to match the budget. And then right around the time you get to what they call uh, CDs, construction documents, the contractor provides us, the city, with a GMP, a guaranteed maximum price. And they say, based on all the design efforts we've done to date, we can build the project for this amount. And then that amount is fixed for the rest of the project. There are some contingencies built in, however. So as we as we continued through the project, like a lot of the improvements that the foundation generously donated, we were able to amend the contract then and say, okay, we actually have a little more money that we want to try to spend. And so we amended that GMP to include those new improvements. So there's still room for for modifications as you go, but a lot of the change orders that you have that happen during during a normal project, they're kind of dealt with um, through the DB method. And this question from Michael Dwayne Brown: How much of COVID imposed shutdown has been or was a blessing during the construction? And whoever wants to take that, I'll just speak from a contract from a from a contracting perspective. We were really nervous about even continuing with this project during COVID because it was, we were about to start and literally COVID was happening. Like just, we did not know what was going to happen. And so we made the decision to move forward and get this project built. We knew what we had, we had a GMP and it was, let's, let's do this. And um, that decision was major blessing because um, we were, we were really fortunate to not have, have any major shutdowns during construction. Actually, we didn't have any shutdowns during construction. So our contractor um, took COVID very seriously, and we actually enforced a mask mandate um, as soon as construction started, months before there was any kind of any kind of state mandate. And they had washing stations, and so we took every precaution the very beginning from from day one to try to keep this project moving forward. Um, so that so that was a good thing. Um, from I don't know if I'd call it a blessing, other than maybe from a library perspective how they were able to try to maintain some level of service. Kim, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, we had to pivot a lot on services. So we moved into Broadway. We thought we'd be open. There were wildfires. There were, you know, then we shut down for COVID. And then so almost immediately we figured out how to do curbside services in a no-contact way. One thing that the staff is uh, is very good at is being nimble thinkers and, and trying to figure out how to work around COVID. It's a challenge for libraries across the country to provide services during COVID, but they're doing it and we're doing it. And so so I I, I don't I don't think that anybody would in the library world would probably think that it benefited us in any way, even though there was all this other stuff going on. 
again, I think the design team and, and the foundation and everybody that was involved in the project were just so easy to work with. It was just such a wonderful experience. And I was only in on the tail end of things. And it was just, you know, such a cooperative, great, positive thing in the world of COVID, despite COVID. Thank you. Now, this question from Sharon Pearson. With the reopening of Laux, I've heard from some groups that there are now requirements for having library representatives be available during any use of the space. Can you explain the reasoning behind this? It's making it a bit difficult to use the space except during working hours. So, Kim, I think that might be key. Yeah. So, I will say we're working on a meeting room policy that includes Laux. Um, we haven't finalized it yet. We're at Laux is currently not open. It's 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 like our other meeting rooms and study rooms. It's closed because of uh, COVID and social distancing. Um, as far as um, we do want people available, staff available, but that doesn't mean that it necessarily wouldn't be outside of normal operating hours, if that makes sense. And now what I think will be our last question is, does the library have solar panels? And if so, how much of the electricity is provided by the panels? We do have solar panels on the roof of the building. We wanted to do that anyway, but it was also a requirement for what we were doing. So we were able to meet that requirement. So we're going to be able to produce approximately 58,700 kilowatt hours of energy annually, which is the equivalent to the usage of four average homes. We're not going to be generating anything extravagant, but that's a pretty cool thing to say that, you know, mm -hmm. for four average homes, we're, we're producing enough energy per year for that. Thank you all. I think we're out of time for questions. And the good news is that I don't think we've missed any questions. Thank you for attending today's program. And thank you to our panelists for introducing us to our new and improved library. Deputy Chief Librarian Kimberly Carroll, Public Library Foundation advocate Kate Van Emerson, and City Engineer Aaron Kimsey spoke to a midday virtual gathering of Salem City Club about the epic two-year project that upgraded the capital city's public library building. From reconfiguring some of the public spaces to make them more efficient and accessible to seismic upgrades and energy efficiency improvement, KMUZ would like to thank Salem City Club for the audio recording to make this program. And the entire panel discussion and Q&A is permanently posted in the City Club archive at SalemCityClub.com. This is Community Radio, KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting local news and public information for the Mid-Willamette Valley. This program, The Forum, is aired on Fridays at noon and repeated Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. Thanks for listening.